0: Welcome to the Embodied Wealth Consciousness Podcast. I'm Julia Trinka, your host, shamanic leadership coach, and self-made millionaire. I'm obsessed with helping powerful spiritual entrepreneurs and revolutionary leaders to actualize a life and business of embodied wealth. I started my journey with literally less than nothing in my bank account. And once I discovered the path of wealth consciousness, my business revenue began to double and triple every year, and it hasn't stopped. I've helped thousands of ambitious, soulful women to access their millions and fully live their dharma. I'm currently holding my ceremony in the sacred lands of Sedona. And with each episode, I bring the energetic and the material together To bring you practical and effective tools to massively up-level your purpose, your legacy, and your wealth. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to learn more about how we can support you in your expansion and revenue generation, visit GetLifeMastery.com Let's get started. The best definition that I've ever heard of karma is that it is our unlived life. Karma is not the law of cause and effect the way that people think. It's certainly not that you do bad things and then bad things happen to you. That's a very Western psyche interpretation of karma. Karma is the way that we are confused because we haven't lived our life we were somehow absent, or suppressing, or acting out not self behaviors. And that leads to confusion and not the kind of positive confusion that's part of like a necessary part of the process of innovation, but confusion about who you really are. I often tell my clients, if you're listening, you've heard me say this before. The only thing standing between you and what you want is that you don't know who you are. You don't remember who you really are. The deepest self. So if we assume for, for this play, this podcast play, that that's true, that actually karma is a way of understanding what stands between us and what we want, then it becomes really, really important that we have protocols and ways to prevent karma from becoming a plaque that builds up in our energetic system, our emotional system, our physical system, our psychic system, and also that we have ways to metabolize it To remove it, to absolve it. The good news is that there are many ways. There are many ways. And if you're anything like me, you like to have a really good, strong toolkit (laughs) because just having one really great tool sometimes isn't enough. There's a couple more things I want to share about karma before we go into processes and practices of absolving karma. I want to give an example. So here's what I mean by karma. So let's say that you are going to go out with some friends and it's a sunny day and you're going to go out for a hike and the hike is going to be long. It's going to be pretty much all day. And you don't put any sunscreen on and everybody else puts sunscreen on. And you go out on the hike, and at the end of the day, you come back, and nobody else has a sunburn, but you have a really bad sunburn. Now, you could decide, you could perspect, you could perceive that you got the sunburn because you're unlucky, or you got a sunburn because you have a genetic disadvantage. But if you're not willing to look at the reality that it's just the presence or lack of sunscreen, that's a karma, right? And then perhaps just for the sake of play, like you don't go out in the sun for the rest of your life. You're constantly avoiding the sun. You don't want to be out in the sun because you believe that you're at some kind of genetic disadvantage and that the sun hates you. (laughs) It's kind of a silly example, but we're doing this all the time. Assumption is... um, One of the greatest ways to create a lot of karmic buildup, lack of investigation, lack of curiosity, lack of allowing yourself to feel. And I'm not trying to turn this into a blame situation. I want to bring this to our consciousness because once a karma is in our consciousness, we have the agency to do something about it. We can become the sacred alchemists that we are yet again. And in sort of a twisted, delicious way, (laughs) it's kind of great that we have all this karma that we're building up all the time because absolving karma can be really, really fun. It can feel really, really good. Like when you get a massage and the pressure is deep enough that it hurts, but it hurts in a good way, right? That, I think... In my opinion, that's the best kind of karmic absolution. It feels like that. It hurts so good. So there are lots of ways to um, dissolve and transmute karma, like so many ways, right? Entire religions and spiritual practices have been built around this. Dogma has been built around this, but The second thing that I wanted to share with you, I I don't actually have the specifics of this, so I apologize, but I remember listening to a radio show a number of years ago, and they were talking about trauma as it impacts children's brains. So essentially, some researchers who work with children who've experienced trauma, um, and they follow the children as they grow into their adulthood, and they actually literally study the structure of their brains they noticed that certain children seemed to have greater resilience than others after experiencing similar degrees and kinds of trauma. And when they were studying the brains of these people when they got older, they noticed that there were literally new pathways that would be built from one area of the brain to another that would physically bypass the area of the brain that had been damaged by the trauma, like trauma damages our brains. I'm not talking about physical trauma, um, although certainly that could physically impact the brain, but um, trauma has a physical impact on the brain. So these people that had demonstrated resilience rather than continuing to just suffer, 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 um, they had these literal new pathways, like the body just built a new pathway so that it didn't have to go through the traumatized tissue, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. So they started doing some deeper research with these people. And what they found is that when a child experiences trauma, if they have just one of the following categories, they tend to have that response of the brain building a new pathway that's healthy. One of those was someone trusted to talk to. Someone with the, that they really felt that they could be themselves. Another was time in nature. Right? If they were able to be out in nature to connect in a meaningful way on a regular basis, that would have the same effect. A third was artistic expression. If they were given tools for artistic expression, their brains would heal by making these rerouting pathways. So it's super important to emphasize here that you don't even need to have all three. These children didn't even need to have all three. If they had even one, it could heal. So Those of us, you know, I work with a lot of coaches, I do a lot of coaching, we tend to be very verbal processing kind of people. Um, Certainly, there are many people who are doing um, somatic coaching or coaching through artistic therapy or combinations of all of these. But we did actually a whole podcast on poetry as a form of healing as a form of self care as a, simply as a form of transmuting or communicating our unlived life to our lived life. Sometimes the things that sit heavy on our souls, not necessarily trauma, but just something heavy. We might feel like we can't do anything about it. Maybe it has something to do with um, a person who's passed away. Maybe it has something to do with something that did happen in our childhood, And we may not have necessarily the shamanic skills nor the belief set to realize that we can change the past. So we need to have creative and responsive ways to address these things. And it gets to be exciting too, right? Poetry and other forms of art can be a way to metabolize fear that we have about the future um, or anxiety or a way to become more intimate with our own excitement We could write a poem to an organ that we want to get to know better in our bodies. The spectrum of possibility with poetry is limitless. So I engage in a lot of different media um, in terms of artistic work. um, And I also do a lot of somatic work. I'll also say that I I am very verbally (laughs) focused Hence the podcast, hence the fact that I do all my own writing in my business. So I wanted to share with you today a poem and a story about where the poem comes from. This poem is the last poem in my new book, Being Medicine. And I'm just going to read the poem without any context and invite you to Cease distraction if you're distracted and to listen as fully as you can. A holding pattern, a pattern of holding, clinging, grasping at something we called normal. Something as thick as air, as solid as space. This holding pattern was no living at all. Now is a time to live into a beauty so immediate that your body is pulled into it, irresistible. This is no time to fight, no time to march or pledge allegiance to anything that is less than the soul's song. That day, that day that she came back, she returned to us in the shape of daughter, Fourteen, soft and wise, that day when we felt the terrible beauty of her, how she would rather die than not truly live. That day was a reckoning. That day she came home from vision quest, our loving laid bare, everything non-essential stripped away the light of her life, her aliveness, the spark of her wild is with us once more. I still can't get through reading that poem without crying. And I actually hope I never do. We're all aware that During the pandemic, something was happening with mental health. Something that I think, if it were happening in any other moment, would have been declared a national emergency. It was a crisis of many people, most of all children, not having the skills to be thrust into isolation. To be taken away from their social groups. um, To essentially have their world turned upside down. And to uh, have parents who were also not prepared. To be teaching their children as well as working. As well as navigating all of their own shit. So, in the second year, I think, of the pandemic, um, you know... In our own state, actually, right before the kids were going to start to go back to school, we were one of the earlier states, actually, but they had been out for over a year. Um, Our daughter was experiencing a lot of different mental and emotional challenges. Um, She tells this story openly. By the way, it's very important that it be understood that this is with her consent, that I'm not telling her story for her but I'm telling my experience of her experience. (laughs) So we had her in counseling sessions and we did have the ability to go see the counselor in person. Um, So we would go to these sessions. I think we were going once a week and there was a certain moment in the sessions. um, I would wait out in the lobby while they were in their session with this beautiful, amazing counselor. She was such a great um, advocate and support for our daughter. But the counselor came out and she told me that my daughter was having suicidal thoughts and that she was actually planning to end her life. And I just completely lost it. My daughter actually did her own piece of writing about that moment um, from her own perspective. Um, and we just, we did not know what to do. And the counselor suggested that we take her to, um, there's an inpatient, uh, mental health facility in that community. And she suggested that we just take her in for an assessment so that we could have the support of professionals. Um, it was a little bit beyond her scope, uh, and we could move forward from there. So I called my husband and I took my daughter over and was just, it It was such a raw moment of love. Um, Everything non-essential stripped away for sure. So my husband came and we went to this hospital and the reason why I'm sharing what I'm about to share is because the initiation that we experienced as a family wasn't just that my daughter was suicidal or that she was in an inpatient facility for a time. It was the way that it happened um, and the horror of that. So we took her to the inpatient facility and there was not actually um, like a licensed psychotherapist on the premises. There was a social worker who was trained to do intake. And so the social worker started to intake and um, didn't have a great manner, uh, it just in terms of like not making a lot of eye contact, seeming distracted, um, not a very easy person for us to relate to. And as soon as the um, assessment began, he told my husband and I that we needed to leave the room. I do not have a lot of regrets in my life, but I regret making that decision to leave the room. And essentially, he went through an interview process with our daughter alone. She was 13 at the time. And then he phoned it in, (laughs) literally phoned it in, to the actual uh, psychotherapist or psychiatrist or whoever the doctor was that was supposed to make the decision. Um, So she was never actually assessed by uh, an actual uh, doctor. And the determination was made that she needed to be put into inpatient immediately um all the while like we had gone back into the room um after this uh at a certain point my daughter again 13 years old actually asked for a different practitioner because she told the man that he made her feel uncomfortable um and a woman was brought in she was much more um easy to relate to but the decision had already been made our daughter by that point was clear that actually she was not going to harm herself um I think the reality of it sunk in and what she said later was that the reality of how much she was loved and how much um, the end of her life would have an impact on so many people that she loved really just like was a splash of cold water in the face. It brought her to reality and she was clear that she was not going to harm herself. So, um, But we were told that if we did not admit her immediately that they would call the police And report us for child abuse. Um, And they were very serious about this. It wasn't a threat. It was literally their standard procedure. So though we did not want her in that facility and she did not want to be in that facility, um, we felt our hand was forced um, and she went into impatient. So remember, this is during COVID. And so for the time that she was in there, um, we were not able to see her. Uh, there was no Zoom or anything. We just got a few minutes of phone calls uh, every few days. And while she was in there, um, you know, again, I, I had no idea what was going to happen. If they were going to medicate her, if they, um, you know, I had already had my right as her parents taken away and overruled. So I had no faith in this organization that they were going to um, honor anything in in terms of our wishes or our boundaries or anything like that. So I spent the next five days with my husband, with our son, um, in just like a, almost like a disembodied state. It was talking to lawyers. It was talking to counselors. You know, we were trying to get her out of this facility, not because we didn't believe that she didn't need care, but we did not want her inside of a system that was so obtuse and so much in complete disregard of what was actually happening. It was extremely transactional um, and was very forced and filled with threat. Um, and so we were just trying to exercise every possible option that we could to get her out. Um, the hospital staff was also pretty uncommunicative. Um, but we were assured eventually that she was not being given medications without our consent, even though they were really, really pushing for that. So this poem I wrote on that fifth day, which was actually her 14th birthday when she came home. Because even inside of, you know, trying to fight a hospital and having conversations with lawyers, having conversations with counselors, having conversations with family members, having conversations with ourselves, the, the deepest piece of it for me, was realizing how asleep I had been as a parent. And I don't say that with any self-blame. I just, I did blame myself at the time. There was definitely a healing journey to recognize that self-blame was actually not going to help anything. But that I did not know that my daughter was suffering so much almost broke me i mean it did break me in many ways but rather than hide in that blame i did everything i could to open and to recognize that even though we have great love as a family we had fallen into a trance fallen into a trance of survival and going through the motions and living outside of our values because it just seemed easier in a time when all of life was shut down. And even as I'm speaking this to you, I'm really clear that I'm kind of cobbling together a story of a set of reasons for why what happened happened. But the truth of it is there's a lot that I still don't know and a lot that I still don't understand. All I know is that She opened a portal of greater courage inside of all of us. And I think the very reason why I'm struggling to describe that time and that moment when she came home is the very reason why I wrote this book. Because some things just can't be explained. They are not meant to be explained. They're only meant to be experienced. And that experience sometimes can be shared through story, but sometimes it's shared through art, where there is no story, there's only expression. And I'm happy to report that our beautiful daughter, she's now, as of this recording, almost 17. She's a little over 16 and a half. And we made a lot of changes in our family, a lot. And actually, even our move, um, I talk about our move to Sedona a lot, but one of the motivating factors for me was knowing that we needed to get into a healthier place. We needed to get into a place that had more opportunities for physical health. We needed to get into a place where she was going to be in a school and a social system that was going to support her aliveness, quite honestly. I'm not trying to pick on the school system we were in, but it was a public school system, and it was just kind of a basic public school system, right? It wasn't teaching her to be a leader. It wasn't teaching her how to actualize her dreams, It wasn't teaching her to be a global citizen and the place where she's at now is. So she talks not infrequently about how different she feels now. And again, I'm not naive enough to know that there perhaps won't ever be a time where she faces these challenges again, but I know that we will meet them in a different way. So all of this sharing, all of this sharing is communicated inside this poem. It's another reason why poems are so powerful. They can take hours and years of experience and put them into a potent package of frequency and love. So I'm gonna read this poem one more time. Now that you've heard the story, just to see if it lands any differently. A holding pattern, a pattern of holding, clinging, grasping. It's something we called normal. Something as thick as air, as solid as space. This holding pattern was no living at all. Now is a time to live into a beauty so immediate that your body is pulled to it, irresistible. This is no time to fight, no time to march or pledge allegiance to anything that is less than the soul's song. That day, that day that she came back, She returned to us in the shape of daughter, 14, soft and wise. That day when we felt the terrible beauty of her, how she would rather die than not truly live. That day was a reckoning. That day she came home from Vision Quest, our loving laid bare, everything non-essential stripped away. The light of her life, aliveness, the spark of her wild is with us once more. Thank you for listening. I hope this met you in all the right ways. Uh Aha! Thank you so much for joining us on the Embodied Wealth Consciousness podcast. For more guidance on wealth generation as an expression of your dharma, visit getlifemastery.com. Remember to follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And tag us on social media to share your insights and manifestations. We'll see you soon. And remember, heaven on earth begins within you.